Lynn Hiles Ministries presents Dr. Lynn Hiles, That You Might Have Life. And here's your host, Dr. Lynn Hiles. See, that what happens is, is what we have to do is see our success is not measured by who knows your name. It's measured by the being in the thing you've been called to do and staying in your lane. And he's hugely successful now. And people are, I mean, now he's got another building and God is blessing him for reaching out to people who need help. Are y'all hearing where I'm coming from? I'm just trying to talk about ordinary people doing extraordinary things. The next thing, the next guy was a guy named Ehud. And he was a Benjamite, and his problem was he was left-handed, but he had a two-edged dagger. And he thrusted it into this king who was uh, by the name of Elon. And this king named Elon, the Bible said that he was very heavy with flesh. And uh, the Bible says that Ehud took this two-edged da dagger. Now, remember, I just read to you something about a two-edged sword. When I think about Benjamin, Ehud, he was left-handed. So he was like, okay, I'm different. I'm a southpaw. So I'm, a, I'm trying to get you to see that everything about these people was something different, but they were ordinary people using extraordinary, God was using them in an extraordinary way. And he took this dagger, the Bible says, and he went into the king Elon, who was heavy with flesh. Now, when I think about Ehud being a Benjamite, how many know the apostle Paul was from the tribe of Benjamin? So when I think about this guy going in, hallelujah, he's a guy who understands the Pauline revelation of the two-edged sword and the finished work of Jesus Christ. And I see Elon as a religious system that's so heavy with flesh that he don't know what to do. And it's, uh, it's almost, uh, scripture calls him obese. How I many of the Bible say you fat? You probably fat. <laughs> it's kind of like when it says he was well old and well stricken in years. My mother used to say to me, have you noticed there's no old people around anymore? I said, Mom, when there's nobody above you, you are the old people. And when my mother passed away two years ago, it dawned on me. I'm the top of the food, i Oh, come on, somebody help us a little bit here. But the Bible said Elon was a, head, a fat man. It said he was heavy with flesh. And I think to myself, God is raising up some people that are left-handed. They're not doing it the same old way as everybody else, but they've got a word that flows from rest. They've got a revelation of the finished work of Jesus Christ. And that message, can I tell you, is penetrating the flesh of a religious system who couldn't produce anything but obesity because it's fat on feeding and not doing anything. And it, he, the Bible said he thrust that sword in of the, uh, the two-edged sword and, 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 and until the, the half, I mean, it's very vivid, and says, till the dirt came out. I got to tell you, man, you know what I see happening all over this planet right now, even the shift since COVID, is God is releasing the message of the finished work of Jesus Christ, the message in the gospel of grace, the message of the new covenant, the message of the kingdom, and it is taking, the, and God is getting the dirt out of a system of religion that has been heavy with flesh. If I sat here and told you some things that are happening in denominations, even around some of the private meetings I've had with some of the major voices in this country who are beginning to make a shift towards an understanding of a two-edged sword that's not a sword you beat people over the head with. I think folk are 
tired of going to church and being told how bad they are and being beat up when they walk through the door or rejected. They're finding now that God is opening a church and a people who've got a message of the finished work that's going to begin not only to deal with the, 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 the dirt that's in the system, but even within us. Can I tell you that if I had time to develop, let me just say something. For pastors, I'm giving you all kinds of preaching material. Because every single one of these stories is a story of what the Word of God can do. When I think about the Word of God being sharp and quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, and it's the Word that flows from rest, it not only brings the dirt out of a system of religion, but it brings it out of us. It gets rid of the flesh. It gets rid of the uncleanness. When I first started preaching, let me just say this to you. Hebrews, the fourth chapter says, the word that flows from rest is quick and powerful. Again, the two-edged sword uh, verse. And it said it divides the center between soul and spirit. It's a thought, a discerner of the thought and the intent of the heart. Neither is anything that's not naked and open before the eyes of him with whom we have to do. But then that we can come boldly to the throne of grace and obtain mercy. When I first started preaching grace and finished work, I don't think I need to explain that here because I think probably this house teaches this. I know Pastor Stu does. I've, we sit and talk and we, how many know the word that flows from rest? When you start not preaching legalism, what do you mean? We're not preaching do's and don'ts. We start preaching a freedom in Christ. When I first started preaching at Stu, people started testing the waters of freedom. Because they've been in bondage so long, they don't know what to do with freedom. I mean, everything you could think of when I was growing up was a sin. I mean, the general rule here is, if it's fun, it's probably going to take you to hell. <laughs> everything was a sin. I mean, I won't go into it because you've heard me talk about it before. But, I mean, you'd always were in the altar getting saved because you thought devil's food cake was going to take you to hell. Playing sports was going to take you to hell. Certain kind of outfit was going to take you to hell. You know, all, all of this kind of... And, and so you live under that. And then all of a sudden you realize, wait a minute, the new covenant... Is not about a law you have to keep. It's about receiving a life that'll keep you. And when I started to preach that, people started testing the waters of freedom because they'd been in bondage so long that they didn't know what to do with freedom. It's amazing to me that the children of Israel, when they came out of Egypt, their first stop was the wilderness of sin. You know why? They just left bondage. Now we're going to just, hey, we're free. Let's test it. But what happened was the waters got bitter because the issue with sin is not so much what it does to God. It's what it does to you and the people around you. He came to save his people, not from God. He came to save them from their sins. Can I get just one amen? amen. God is not out to get you. He's out to save you. But when I started preaching that, I, I, I started dealing with stuff because people started, man, I mean, churches and even leaders started testing the waters of freedom to the place where I thought, Lord, am I preaching something that's creating? And we get accused. When you preach grace, people say, well, you're giving, you're giving people a license to sin, to which I reply, they've been sinning without a license for years. And they were sinning before I preached this. They were just hiding it better. I know you ain't going to help me preach this morning, but I'm going to preach. They were just hiding it better. But what happened was, what was in, the Lord began to say to me, the word that flows from rest, when you realize that God is not mad with you and he's brought you into a freedom, what's in your heart begins to surface. 
And so I said to the Lord, I said, Lord, am I preaching something that's causing this? He said, no, you keep preaching because it's doing exactly what it's supposed to do. The word that flows from rest reveals what's in people's heart. It divides between soul and spirit, the thought and the intent of the heart. And I begin to see, come on, somebody, stuff start to surface in my own life and in other people's lives that I didn't know was in my heart because although I had kept it under control with law, I had changed my behavior, but I hadn't changed my heart. Because law will conform you, grace will transform you. And so as I continued to preach the message of grace, what was in people's hearts started to surface, just like it did in the wilderness of sin. And God, Moses cried out to God and said, God, what am I doing about these people in the wilderness of sin? He said, because the water got bitter there. How many know sin will cause the water to get bitter. It will cause problems in your life. God won't leave you, but your wife probably will, or your husband, or you, you may end up in jail. Are you tracking with me what I'm saying? So God said to Moses, and the Lord showed him a tree. And I said, Lord, what are you saying? He said, preach the cross. Put the cross, put the tree in the water. I said, all right, Lord, I'm going to preach the cross. And I started preaching how Jesus dealt with all of your sin and your problem. And the water started to get sweet. The people started to repent, not because they were afraid of God, but because the word flowed from rest had revealed what was in their heart. But then they realized, come on, can, I, can we just, let me ask you this question. How many of you have sinned since you've been saved or under grace? Come on. And you, you, you thought, well, you know what? If God ain't mad with me, I'm going to try that. And then, how many of you besides me tried it and you thought, you know what? That ain't as fun as I remembered. Anybody? Come on. Every head bowed, every eye closed. No. <laughs> Do you know why it's not fun? Because it's not your nature to sin anymore. And then all of a sudden, you were delivered from that thing. In other words, now it no longer had a hold on you because you had not only suppressed it now your heart had been revealed so you could come boldly not to a throne of judgment but to a throne of grace and to a faithful high priest who's been touched with the feelings of all of our weaknesses yet without sin so that he is able to sustain us and to give us mercy and grace to help in the time of trouble and then real transformation becomes the what I'm talking about, a Benjamite messenger with a two-edged sword who'll thrust it in until the dirt comes out. Let me quickly come through a few of these. The next guy that it comes up and talks to is Shamgar. Shamgar was a, fa a farmer. I like Shamgar's name. He just has one of them, you know, names that sound bad, like you don't want to mess with this dude. His name is Shamgar. Shamgar was a farmer, and he, all he had as a weapon was an ox goat. He was not a military strategist. All it says in the, is that in his day concerning him, the highways were unoccupied. And there were the Philistines had overtaken the highways, and God raised up Shamgar, who was a farmer who didn't like to kill stuff. All he wanted to do was plant seed and see something grow. And the Lord said to me, the one I'm calling to reopen the highway is going to be somebody who keeps their garden. And I said, God, what are you saying about the garden? He says, the garden's the finished work because everything I did in a garden, I did it in a garden. I prayed in the garden until I sweated. I sweated until I bled. I bled until one drop of blood touched the cursed earth and put the earth curse in reverse that said you earn your bread by the sweat of your brow. 
He was buried in the garden. He was crucified in the garden. And now the scripture says you are God's garden. You are God's husbandry. And how many of when you start the garden, keep the garden? Come on. It's not about a fight or a military strategist. This guy was a farmer. But he got up one morning and uh, the Philistines had overtaken their country. I, I believe that there is something that's going to rise up in God's people that's going to be a grassroots movement. Oh, there's so much I want to say here this morning. We're trying to change stuff from the top down, and God wants to change it from the bottom up. He wants to start with us and then families, and then we're trying to wait on the right guy to get in. I don't even get in politics because my audience is way too big. But I can tell you the kingdom is not coming from the White House. The kingdom's coming from God's house. Hallelujah. And it's coming from your house. Hallelujah. And it, you can't legislate righteousness. You can't legislate the kingdom. If you could, Moses already had the laws that didn't produce the kingdom. The kingdom doesn't come by observation. The kingdom comes because God brings heart transformation in people who are willing to begin to make some changes. I really believe there has to be a grassroots movement that begins with individuals and then families and then from there up. And so Shamgar, I think, is this guy who gets up out of bed one morning. I just want to picture this setting. I'm taking poetic liberty here. <clears throat> but he's a farmer. <clears throat> if you've ever been on a farm, I was raised on a farm when I was really young. Man, sometimes we had an old Minneapolis tractor. It wouldn't start. It was one of the crank things. We built fires on it. We did all kinds. You know, sometimes then you'd get that thing started, then the plow would break or the cows would get out. And you're, you know, I think Shamgar might have been having one of them kind of days where the cows had gotten loose, the fence was broke, the tractor wouldn't start because he didn't have a tractor. <laughs> and then probably got in there and Miss Shamgar had burnt the toast and you know, it wasn't going real good, and the screen door was broke, and the hot water heater went out, one of them bad days, and he started down out of, to head towards his field, and he probably looked and said, I would like to take the highway, because if I could take the highway, I could be to my farm or my field in five minutes, but because of these Philistines that have occupied and that are robbing and, and plundering people on the highway, I've got to take the path of least resistance and I'm going to take a detour and I've got to go down this path and through the briars and across the thing. It's going to take me another hour to get across there. And he might have struggled that day to go down across that thing, to cross that stream or to cross that creek and briar burns on his legs and all kind of stuff, cattle not wanting to go plow right. And something rose up in him that evening on the way after he finished on a long day and stuff wasn't going good. And he probably said to himself, I'm going to take the highway home today because this is my road. Come on, somebody. Touch your neighbor and say, this is my road. I'm tired of taking the path of least resistance and the obstacles and the enemies of my life that need to be confronted. And while he didn't have any weapon, all he had was an ox goat. He took what was in his hand and he said, this is my road. And I'm going to take the highway home today. And as he went down the highway, he came to the Philistines. And by the time he was got back home, he had killed 300 Philistines. He backed up in a cleft of a rock and took that ox goat. And by the time he was done, he was in a bloody flux and he killed 300 high Philistines. He walked through the door that night, probably Ms. Shamgar saw him. His hair looked like it was rustled up and blood on his shirt. And come on, somebody. And he looked at her and said, you can take the highway now, honey. Hallelujah, because the highway's open. I mean, somebody has got to make a way in the wilderness for even the next generation to begin to follow some things. And what he does is he begins to open the highway because I believe there is a highway. I could preach on this one and tell you there is a straight and narrow 
that leads to life and the straight and narrow gate is not performance Christianity. It does not lead to heaven. The straight and narrow leads to life. Right. Straight is the gate, narrow is the way that leads not to heaven. It leads to life. Broad is the way. Wide is the gate that leads to destruction. And a lot are going in there. At, but Jesus tells them in the very next chapter that the door and the way is not performance Christianity. He says, I'm the way, I'm the truth, and I'm the life. And if you come to me, I'll give you a life and that more abundantly. The real gospel will give you back your life. But sometimes you've got to take the highway and say, this is my I got to tell you, man, I feel like preaching in here this morning because when God called me to preach, man, I got to tell you, I have preached for 45, I think 45 years now, full-time traveling ministry. And I got to tell you, when I started pioneering this word, there was no highway. It went beyond my waters. When I, I mean, when I, I, people wouldn't walk across the road to spit on you when you preached in barns or, or somebody's living room and nobody wanted to hear the gospel that's being preached now across airways. Then, Hallelujah. And some of the, listen, I'm not trying to be arrogant, but I can just tell you there's a lot of guys that you watch on TV that buy my product, hallelujah, that have influenced. And so I'm not trying to say that to be arrogant. I'm just trying to say when I first started opening the highway, there wasn't many of them. But right now in major denominations, they're starting to make a shift towards the gospel that's beginning to bring people back to the highway. And say, this, this highway that we're on is a highway that will produce holiness. But rules and regulations don't produce holiness. The indwelling life of Christ and your union with him is what produces the life that flows out of you and opens the path for the next generation. I can't say how thankful I am for men like my daddy and men like your daddy who got up, come on, and pioneered a world that four generations. I thought to myself as I sat on my porch the other day, Hallelujah. You know, this this the trip we're going to Brazil is going to high impact. And, and some of the platforms that, that I preach on, I'm not saying this to be arrogant. I'm just, you know, the, like I said, it's sometimes it, it is just kind of like almost I got to pinch myself because it's went beyond my wildest dream of how far I thought the message and the gospel would go. And the books that I've written have got into the hands of presidents and, and, and leaders of countries and politicians and, and, and leaders and, and denominations. And, and, and the shift has begun to really come to the place I had to point my, you know, most pinch myself. And I thought to myself as I was sitting on my porch the other day, thinking about my dad who's passed away, my mom who passed away as well, what they would think that the church that they founded is still going on and that their grandsons and their children's children's children are still praising Jesus. I can promise you this morning, my youngest granddaughter, says she walked through the door, went to right front to the front to start to dance and praise God because she can't even wait on the music. She just wants to worship. And if you don't get it started, she's going to dance anyway. And in the middle of praise and worship last Sunday, somebody went to the altar. She's only four years old. Somebody went to the altar without any hesitation. Her and another little girl's over there, got their hands on them praying for them. You know, I had to say, the highway's open now. Come on, somebody. <laughs> I said the highway's open. Maybe it'll start with your generation because God uses ordinary people. When I think about the history that I came from and, and the, the background of our family, somebody asked me one time, I said, what is your what, what, what is your what is your background, Brother Hiles? I think they're asking, you know, what is my educational background? I said, I was a heathen. What was yours? <laughs> my grandma sold bootleg whiskey. It was, <laughs> she called it white lightning or sneaky Pete. You could burn it in the car or drink it. Don't y'all look at me funny, you from West Virginia. 
It, my uncle drank a bottle of it one day and hunted squirrels for three days with a BB gun. It was some bad stuff. Hallelujah. <laughs> but Jesus interrupted Grandma's <laughs> bootleg business. And now generations later, instead of being notorious in our city for criminal activity, the main spiritual influence of the city comes either from our church or my brother's church. I'm not saying that to be arrogant. I'm just trying to tell you it's because one guy, my, my father got up one day an alcoholic and he said, if you'll save me, I'll serve you. And he turned around 100%. And Stu's been there. When you come to our church, just about all of the kids, grandkids, either go to our church or they go to my brother's church. And I think, you know what? If it didn't work for nobody else, hallelujah. What a life. Are you tracking with me? Hallelujah. I thought about then, there's, there's, there was another guy. Then the next one on the story was Deborah. I'm going to try to go through these quickly. I'm going to go all 12 of them. Deborah, it was a woman. She worked with another woman named JL. Now, this, this to me probably is a struggle for uh, back in those days. I'm saying the culture would have probably been, if, it was, if it's difficult, it's been, you know, like I said, my pastor, I say this without embarrassment or without trying to defend. My pastor is a woman. It is my older, it's my oldest sister. She's actually younger than I am, but my sister can flat foot preach, can't she, Stu? Hallelujah. Great pastor. I have no problem. My mother was a great, my mother was a better preacher than my dad was, but she got all kinds of hate mail all the time she'd preach, and people wouldn't even sign their name to them, how women shouldn't preach, and she said, well, uh, you know, you're going to have to take that with God because he's the one that called me. Hallelujah. And, you know, we get in all kinds of arguments about people miss out on the, on the blessing of God because they're looking at vessels. But God chose a woman by the name of Deborah. In other words, what I'm trying to show you is there are ordinary people who were dealing left-handed. Shamgar was a farmer. Uh, Othniel was a younger brother syndrome. Now we got Deborah and Jael, and they're going to lead a victory to this king. And this king by the name of Caesarea, this is powerful to me. He comes into the tent of Jael. Sisera's name, by the way, means the carnal mind. So Sisera comes into the tent of Jael, and he's thirsty, and she says, refresh me. So she gave him some milk. And when she gave him some milk, I could take that and develop it and tell you that milk speaks of the sincere milk of the word being exercised in the word of righteousness. And she gives him some milk, and he she tells him, just lay down and rest here and rest a while and I'll close the tent. When that dude went to sleep, she took a nail. The Bible calls it a nail. It's probably a tent peg or something. She put that nail on that dude's head in a mallet and she drove that nail through his head, through his temples and nailed him to the ground. Hence, she nailed that dude. You say, well, how's that got anything to do with the finished work of Jesus Christ? Because the Hebrew word for nail, there's the same one they use when they nailed Jesus to the cross. So sometimes you got to deal with your carnal mind. Come on, somebody. you got to take the nail of the victory of Calvary, put it right on that unregenerated thought, and nail that dude. Y'all tracking with me? The next one was a guy by the name of uh, uh, Gideon. He was threshing wheat. He's a coward. He was the least of his father's house. He had to have several fleeces to even obey God, but he's threshing wheat and, and hiding under the wine press. Powerful story, not going to go into the details of again, just giving you a brush stroke this morning, but this stuff could be developed into all kinds of sermons. Wheat and wine. He's threshing wheat, hiding it under the wine press because the Midianites are coming to take everything he has, and so he's eking out a living. 
with weed and wine. When I think about wheat and wine, I think about bread and wine. And when I think about bread and wine, I can't help but think about this is my body. It was broken for you, and this cup is my blood of the new covenant. How many know what the enemy would like to do is steal what was exacted through this is my body that was broken for you? And it was, I, to me, I think where the famine has been in the land is, is for really not for bread and for fish, but for the hearing of the real word of God because a lot of stuff that's preached over American pulpits is nothing but self-help political agendas, all kinds of stuff. And I'm telling you, we, we must get back to preaching the gospel and say, as priest of the Lord, do our job is to bring forth bread and wine. That's all Melchizedek did is he served bread and wine. This is my body. It was broken for you. And let me tell you, even in that, and I could sidetrack and really preach a whole sermon just on this guy alone, but the communion table was not to disqualify you. It was to qualify you because the same night that he was betrayed, he took bread and blessed it and gave it to the betrayer and even walked right right over to, jo uh, to Judas, knowing he would uh, betray him, he said, this is my body. It was broken for you. He walks over to Peter, who's going to deny him before the rooster crows and say, this is my body. It was broken for you because what's on the table that you eat is what brings the deliverance to you. For except you eat my flesh and drink my blood, then you don't have any life in you. And we try to get people to stay away from it when what we ought to do is offer to every rascal in the place and say, hey, if you get this in you, it's going to transform your life. So Gideon was hiding wheat and threshing it under the wine press and, and, and God began to raise him up and, and, and by the time God was finished with uh, Gideon, he's like, who do you, he, God shows up to him, hey, mighty man of valor. Gideon be like, who are you talking to, man? Hey, mighty man of valor. How many of God always speaks what he sees? You don't see yourself as mighty, but he sees you as mighty. And by the time God was finished with Gideon, Gideon took 300 men. Now, he had a church of 30,000 at one time. And then he has the Gideon revival and everybody leaves him except people who can drink water from the hand. And that'll preach too because the hand speaks of five-fold ministry. Not people who lap like a dog, but people who can drink water from the hand of real apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. That's what narrows the field down. But he takes 300. By the time he's finished, he takes those 300 men. Not without an Uzi, a Scud missile, a grenade. He takes them with a pitcher, a candle, and a trumpet. Now, see, I get, you, you know, by the time, you know, when, by the time you get to the place where you're even willing to go with 300. You're probably thinking, if I at least have some good weapons, I'll take these 300 dudes down. But God said, I'm going to save not by many, but by few. I'm going to start with the grassroots movement where it doesn't look like you can get any glory or credit for it. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it with a pitcher. I'm going to put a light, a candle, and an earthen vessel because the gift and the treasure is in earthen vessels. And then I'm going to give a trumpet. And when you blow that trumpet, it's going to break that outer shell and the light that's inside is going to come out. And it's going to scare the enemy to death. When I look at all, you know, in the years I've been in ministry, I used to think, you know, back especially in the days when I was preaching on stuff about being, you know, just about holiness being so much about performance. And I thought, you know, 
even when I was preaching, I was thinking, you know, I'm not even living this myself, but I'm probably somebody is somewhere. So probably these well-known guys and all this, you know, glow-in-the-dark preachers, they all, you know, they're living it. So, you know, maybe they're somebody somewhere. I am excited to announce the release of my latest book titled The Great I Am. In this book, we will explore the seven times in the Gospel of John that Jesus says, I am. When he uses that phrase, it is always in contrast to something from the Old Covenant. For instance, they thought Moses and the law was the door into the sheepfold, but Jesus said to them, I am the door. They thought that Israel was the true vine, but Jesus said to them, I am the vine, you are the branches. As you read the pages of this book, you will discover that Jesus removed the covenant of death and replaced it with the covenant of life. Get your copy of the book, The Great I Am, today.